Stay hungry, stay foolish. How does one fashion a book of resistance, a book of truth in an empire of falsehood? Is it possible for freedom and independence to arise in new ways under new conditions? Philip K. Dick. The argument of this episode is that we've evolved a number of mental modules. They are associated with characteristic types of human behavior. This book and this episode will introduce us to 10 people. In a way, we already know them, only we don't, not really. In a sense, they are us only they're not entirely. They inform and shape the most important decisions of our lives, but you're almost certainly unaware of their intervention. They are the 10 types of human. Who are they? What are they for? How did they get into your head? We all want to believe that there are some things that we would never do. We want to believe that there are other things that we would always do, but how can we be sure? What are our limits? The answer lies with the 10 types of human. The people we become when we are faced with life's most difficult decisions. But who or what are these types? Where do they come from? How did they get into our heads? Mixing cutting-edge neuroscience, social psychology, and human rights research, the 10 types of human is at once a provocation and a map to our hidden selves. It provides a new understanding of who we are and who we can become. Ultimately, that is what the 10 types of human is all about finding fresh ways to be free. We welcome human rights barrister, who as Queen's Council has been instructed in some of the biggest cases of recent years involving murder, terrorism, civil liberties, war crimes, human rights and genocide. He has been instrumental in changing the law to better protect women and girls at risk of FGM and works pro bono internationally with survivors of modern day slavery, human trafficking and violence against women and girls. He is also author of the phenomenal 10 Types of Human, a new understanding of who we are and who we can be. We welcome Dexter Diaz to the show. Hey, Aiden, how are you doing? That was some intro, man. That took a lot of practice. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, the thing about it is that it's so strange when you hear someone uh, reciting some of that back to you. You think, hang on, is that me? Because... You know, the kind of work I do is so intense. You get absorbed. Like I've just, for example, done a gangland assassination case. And I've been so absorbed in that that you don't really think about other things. And then, you know, there are these other aspects of what you know I've been dabbling in, I suppose, over the last uh, couple of decades, which I hope we can talk about over the next few minutes. Let's get straight into it because we're actually not going to get through this to the depth I'd love. It would be a 10-hour show if, if we did. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think people have that much attention. At least, at least, yeah. Exactly. True. So you tell us some books begin with an idea and others begin with an event. And this book is of the latter kind. It'd be great if you introduced us in the way you do in the book. Yeah. Well, as, as you said, Aidan, you know, I'm a human rights lawyer. And, you know, I suppose uh, lawyers, particularly court litigators, you know, and barrister, are known to have pretty thick skins. And you try, you, it's kind of professional uh, self-defense mechanism. You cultivate that. But every now and then there's a case that gets under that skin. And the case that happened for me like that, that was the launch pad of this book, really was the most unassuming one. It was about 
this boy, and it's perhaps, I guess, I guess it's kind of the most haunting evidence I've seen in my 25, 30 years of legal practice. And there was just some CCTV footage, Aiden, in this case, uh, black and white in a corridor. And the CCTV footage shows this young boy, a child, walking down the corridor in silence. And he was, you know, he's small. I mean, he was four foot ten, weighed six and a half stone. And the footage shows him walking down the corridor, turning left and going into his room, which was also his cell because this was a prison in the Midlands in, the, in, in England. And a couple of minutes later, this huge prison officer is seen on the footage, rushing down the corridor, turning left, going into the room, closing the door. A couple of minutes later, another one goes in, then another one. So three go into the room, turn left and shut the door. And then a few minutes later, that child, uh, whose name is Gareth, um, is dead. And it was my job, really, uh, to find out what happened in that room. And I represented his mother, Pam, uh, in the inquest into Gareth's death to find out what actually did happen and why it was that uh, this highly vulnerable young person was killed. At the time, uh, Gareth, when I represented him, Gareth was the youngest person to be killed in a uh, British prison. Um, and during the case, you know, Pam was there listening to people who were ducking questions and evading responsibility for her child's death. And she showed great dignity, but she asked me a question which really... I guess stopped me in my tracks because we got a, you know, we got a fantastic result in inverted commas from a legal point of view, which was that we proved for the first time that a death like that in custody went the responsibility for it went all the way, not only from people involved at the coalface in the prison and prison governors and managers, but also the prison company, the private prison company that planet, but all the way to government and to the government departments that had created the system of treating and restraining children that was inherently unsafe and that led to this death. At the end of it, we got this fantastic, highly critical narrative verdict from the jury. But Pam said to me, Dexter, we know other children will be hurt and other children will die. So what are we going to do about it? And it seemed to me that was important. It raised the fundamental question that we have to confront as moral sentient beings. What do we do when we are confronted with great injustice? Yeah, and I love that because you didn't just answer her initial question. It was like you went up in the helicopter and you answered a bigger question, which is, why do we hurt the most fragile things? Why do we hurt other humans? Why have we got this inside us? And you tell us it is a, a case of both nature and nurture that are important, and that science actually has a little bit of the answers behind it as well. The thing about it is, back then, and this happened about uh, 10 years ago, um, I couldn't give Pam an answer a proper answer to 
a question. She said to me, why did they do that? Why did they do that to my son? And to be honest, the, the real launch pad for the book was to try to provide that grieving, decent mother with a better answer to the question of why her son was dead. And of course, you know, what she wanted was what I could not give her, which was a son back. And, and you see kind of the, the limits, you know, lawyers, particularly, you know, barristers. And when you become Queen's Council, QC, Queen's Council, you know, you, you follow your self-importance. You know, there's no doubt about that. And then you are confronted with mortality. You're confronted with the very real suffering of ordinary, decent people. And you see your limits. And so it was, it was just one of those things, I suppose. It was a direct um, encounter with terrible, terrible heartache and suffering. And I thought I had to do something about it. When I read the book and I let it absorb, let it sink in, the Edmund Burke quote came to my mind. And it really is relevant for you. It, I felt you deserve to be have this quote related to you the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing and that you in this case decided to be a good man and you acted and you used your influence and your expertise to actually make a difference in the world and then you produced this piece of work so the rest of the world can understand and and i thought rather than leave this i would usually leave this to the end of the show to say this year but i i really do feel that and i commend you for it and at this stage, early on in the show, I'd ask you, what would you like to happen as a result of this book? What would you like the world to receive? What message? I think, you know, you know what? You've nailed it, really, because you've kind of cut through 816 pages, to be honest, to get to, you know, I, I think it took me a, a sort of a, a, a journey, a sort of intellectual odyssey, really which was meandering, you know, it wasn't, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, something that's linear. This wasn't linear. The writing style, I suppose, reflects that a little bit because I knew that there was a terrible wrong here. You know, we as a society in England and Wales, we, we use force and violence to restrain and control children in a way that, you know, we as human rights lawyers were deprecated and you know the uh, european commission on human rights has told the, Euro the uh, british government to stop doing it and they don't and we have challenged it because we think it is morally abhorrent but and so that kind of that kind of made me think look i need to do something about it because pam was right you know it was pam who said you know that other children are going to be hurt dexter so what are you going to do? And so I felt faced with this kind of moral dilemma because on a, on a, on a professional level, you know, the technical answer to Pam's question for me as, as the barrister was, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to move on to my next case and leave this behind. But I knew that Pam was right. That if we didn't try to change this system, the outcomes, the outputs would be the same and children would be hurt. At that point, I was just appointed uh, QC and made up to Queen's Council. And immediately, I didn't everyone thought I was completely mad. <clears throat> I took a sabbatical and went back to university 
to do research on this issue about how and why it is we use violence on children in prisons. And that really was the sort of first part of the book. And just to say to the listener as well, like, wh- while that was your driving force behind the book, you unravel and you explode all of us into these 10 characters that we're all capable of being and then tell us why. One of the key things I thought was interesting was you tell us our behavior is influenced by where we are, what we are taught, what we learn, what we experience. So nurture matters. You're very, very close to, to this extreme violence, these extreme cases. Therefore, that actually matters. And you tell us that that affects our bias in life. And this brings us nicely to biology and the person one, which is kinsman. You open this with a mind-opening dilemma, which is the classroom and the gunman. What happened was, just to put it into context, Dave, was so the sort of phase one of the research was over here in the UK at Cambridge. I, I was doing research into how we're hurting children in our prisons, you know, in a, in a complete, to me, completely unacceptable way. And, you know, the research I did there, I think we kind of nailed it on an institutional level. We kind of worked out interviewing children, interviewing also, interestingly, prison officers. I wanted to see both sides of, of this dynamic. We worked out on an institutional level how it was that dysfunctional pathological cultures within institutions, which perhaps we can talk about later, but I think this is very, very important produces and reproduces harmful outcomes. But what I what I lacked, I think, in the analysis was what was the individual psychological interaction, that more micro aspect of it, I didn't have. And so I in the intervening period I was uh, made up as, as a part time judge over here. And then immediately I done I did that. I said, oh by the way, I'm off again and I went to United States to Boston, had a sabbatical over there at the Department of Psychology at Harvard. And the reason I mention that is because I, you know, I remember in my office uh, overlooking Harvard Yard, amazing view that extends all the way from sort of uh, Harvard in uh, a sort of suburb of Boston called Cambridge, Massachusetts, and all the way from Cambridge. You can see in this 14th floor, all the way, Aiden, basically to the Atlantic, it's an incredible view. Where, by the way, you couldn't get English breakfast tea, you could only get Irish breakfast tea, <laughs> noticed, which, was, which was great. But, Sorry about that, man. No, no. <laughs> it's just it's a packaging job, you know. But, you know, the thing was, I, I had a lot, I, you know, I spent a lot of time researching these troubling ideas about you know, the questions you asked at the beginning, why do we hurt the most vulnerable uh, people? You know, what sort of what sort of mechanism is driving this in human beings? And it was the first anniversary of um, the shootings at the school in Hartford, Massachusetts. And that's that just made me think, and I was there, you know, probably about 11, 12 o'clock at night, and all the lights spread out before me for, you know, 30, 40 miles down to, down to the ocean. And I thought, what about, what about this dilemma? Imagine if you go into a school, um, 
And when you go into a school, you're, you realize that the teachers um, have been shot. And you go into a classroom and you walk there and you see that you can save 24 children in the classroom and that there's a gun loose in the school. And so you've got a choice and you can save those 24 children and leave them out by the back door. And then just as you're about to do that, which is what everybody would obviously do, you hear another voice in the opposite end of the corridor, which is the voice of a child. And then you've got a dilemma because that child is in fact your child, your son, your daughter. And you're faced with this issue. What do you do? If you, if you're faced with this choice of saving 24 strangers, 24 children, 24 strangers, or your own child, what would you do? And that, that dilemma, when, when I thought about it, I, I, to be honest, I'm not sure where it came from. You know, it was the first anniversary of the Sandy Hook um, uh, shootings at the school there in, in Connecticut. But it, it just sent a chill down me because I've got two children. Uh, what would you do? And, you know, I, I pose this hypothetical many, many times to all sorts of different people. And there are not many people that I've come across who would save the 24 children in the classroom. Almost anybody would save their own child. And that's a really interesting uh, response, I think. There was one person who um, is, in fact, a, re a really nice person as a, as a friend of mine who's a lawyer. Um, as we pushed the, the, the hypothetical, I said, well, look, what if, what if it wasn't 24 children? What if it was 100 children you could save? Would you save 100 children or would you save your own child? And then, you know, we called it the breaking point. At what point would you break? Would you save those children or save your own flesh and blood? And her answer was, I would say, I would basically, I said, we, we kept going up and up and up and up in the numbers. And eventually I said, okay, all the children in the world. And she said, yep. I would sacrifice all of those for my child. Then she realized and she said, no, except I need someone for my child to play with. So it's all the children in the world minus one is my right number. And then that's an interesting uh, finding because what is the question I was trying to understand is what is the mechanism? What is it that is driving us to do that? And whether your number is 24 or 50 or 100, a lot of people break around a hundred. A lot, a lot of people break about a thousand. But if you think about it, why would why would we have such strong um, preferences for our own children? You know, and these are not these are not disturbed, unbalanced people. These are all perfectly well-adjusted people. And it and it it occurred to me that there is something <clears throat> very deep and very fundamental uh, going on. And what is in fact going on is um, our genes. And when you, and if you look at the research base and the science, when we in fact exhibit um, a preference for our children, um, what in fact we're doing is exhibiting a preference for our genes. And so the whole of this part of evolutionary psychology and evolutionary science. And the, and the, the kinsman, which is 
type of human that this relates to is all about that, I think, Aidan, about we have a incredibly strong bias. More, we all know that it's a truism to say we prefer our, our family, irritating though they always are to us, and as difficult as <laughs> Christmas might be, we do, we do generally prefer our family family. But there is, and, we, and so that we, we, we intuitively know that, that there is a preference there. I think the point of the hypothetical was it forces you to confront, if you do it honestly, just how frighteningly strong your preference is in a way you could never really imagine. And a lot of people find that disconcerting. But the answer to it is because it relates to one of the two fundamental drives, you know, that Charles Darwin identified about what the two fundamental purposes of life, which are survival and reproduction. And reproduction is all about passing your own genes into the next generation. Yeah, and it's, it's such a fabulous dilemma to just challenge our thinking and make us realize that we're driven by these behaviors that are animalistic they're in our biology we'd like to think we're evolved and we have this great neocortex mm. that helps us but we, deep down these 10 types are in there and it, it reminds me of jung's jung's work on the shadow yeah and that yeah. we tend to kind of go no i'm not that shadow that darker side of my personality i'm not but what i love what you do is you help us understand the shadow and then realize that we are capable and that it takes certain circumstances, nurture, and it, it takes certain parts of our biology, nature. And it's a mix of those that actually, that gives us this integrated human that we are. A hundred percent. I mean, funnily enough, I'm giving a talk to the uh, Jungian society in January, as it happens, about, about exactly this age. It's such an interesting point that you make, I think. It seems to me Another way of looking at this book and the domain we're talking about is this fundamental truth about human beings. You know, in one of, one of the parts of the book, which I may or may not have time to get to today, uh, called The Aggressor, you know, there was a very high-powered conference in Lisbon about uh, 25, 30 years ago where uh, some of the greatest uh, research scientists and thinkers all had a symposium and they reached the conclusion to the question, do we have a violent brain? And the answer was, no, we don't. No, we don't. So that was in about, I think, 1990. Within two or three years, there were concentration camps and genocide and ethnic cleansing in mainland Europe, in Bosnia. Within two or three years. Within four years, one million people were killed in the Rwandan genocide within a hundred days. Wow. I think another way to look at the book and to look at this dilemma that we face is a recognition that it's about how we deal with this fundamental truth about ourselves that we have the capacity for good and evil. And I think, you know, this, this idea that we don't have a violent brain, I think is only part of the answer. If the question is, are we implacably and always warlike and aggressive? The answer is no. If the question is the more accurate one, 
or the more useful one, do we have contained with us the capacity for using aggression uh, strategically and instrumentally? The answer is absolutely. And when, when I sometimes raise that in lectures or seminars or talks like it, and there are people who want to believe like I want to believe, that I, I'm a great fan of the human species, you know, I think a lot of stick, but part of what I'm trying to do in the book is with some of the extraordinary people who I've worked with and whose stories I try to tell in the book. You know, we are a remarkable, a remarkable species. We really are. And I think we do ourselves down a lot. So I do want to believe that we're better than we are. But I think we need to, in a completely clear-sighted way, see what we are. And when people say, well, no, I'm not aggressive, I wouldn't be aggressive. But then you say, well, okay, imagine this hypothetical where you have a home intruder, a burglar, and someone comes in with a knife and goes into your baby's bedroom and is about to do something with that weapon. And you have got one option, and that option is to use violence against that person to stop it. What are you going to do? And the answer is, of course, everybody knows what you'll do. 99.9% of, I, I would have thought of people will do that. And so we have the capacity within us to use strategic violence. That is part of our function. That's the aggressor in us. But it doesn't mean that we are the aggressor. It doesn't mean that we will always be violent. It doesn't mean that human beings are warlike and nothing else. And that's the mistake I think people make. This is the thing that really attracted me to reaching out to you was, was your value of the human race? Because it's not like you see it as glass half full or glass half empty. You see it as, let's talk about the benefits of ice. <laughs> you know, you, you, you work outside the box to, in order to inform us of the box. And it's interesting what you said there, because you talk about the driver's seat and you say, so we have subselves based on our current scenarios. What, what scenario are we in? And in that scenario, a different subself takes the driver's seat or takes the wheel and starts taking over. And that's actually okay because that's driven by this drive for survival and for protecting our, our genes and etc. But I'd love to move on to the story of Ghana and Anthony, because this is how you you introduce the next per person, the next subself, which is the perceiver of pain. In the east of the country, there's a huge great lake. Lake Volta. And it's really the damming up of two rivers, the White and the Black Volta River. And when the uh, independence, when Ghana got its independence from uh, Britain, um, the first government decided to dam up these rivers in order to create hydroelectric power, which has you know, been a, a huge boost to their economy and quality of their lives. But the upshot of it, the consequence, was that the backspill, the backwaters from these two massive rivers flooded 250 miles worth of land. And so it created this lake. And in this lake, large parts of the lake are over um, these subtropical forests, you know, amazing mahogany forests. And so you go, when you go there, you see it's the most extraordinary landscape in the world. You know, it's almost like someone has CGI'd it, Aiden. You just would not believe what it looks like. You have the, you know, this African lake with these blue skies above, and you have these um, fossilized 
fingers of trees sticking out from the water. And what happens is that um, the former um, pastoralists who lived there, who uh, had cattle and farms, all had their land flooded. So they've turned to fishing. But because the fishing is over these forests, the nets constantly get caught in the trees. And so they need to use someone to dive under the, the boats. They have these long thin arrow boats they fish with to dive under the arrow boats and release the nets from, from the trees. And so they use, because it's such a subsistence difficult um, economy, they use the cheapest form of labor, which is not only child labor, but child slave labor. And so at Lake Volta, there are probably 20,000 children who, in plain view, and in breach of international law, in breach of Ghana's own internal domestic law, are exploited as slaves uh, on the lake. And every year, children die in the lake because it's incredibly dangerous to dive under uh, in this murky water to try to free these nets and children get tangled in the nets and in the branches underneath and they drown every year. So I'm working on a project at the moment with, we hope, the BBC, and the Guardian newspaper and UNICEF, a special human rights advisor to UNICEF. And we hope to do something about it and change it. But what brought it home to me was the story of, of just two boys, really, um, who, one of whom uh, I met in Ghana, um, in the capital, Accra, and told me about his name was Anthony. And, you know, he was uh, sold into slavery by his father, which is something that does happen. And when I was there, the average price for a child slave was 20 US dollars. And so the uh, father sold Anthony to what they called labor agents in inverted commas, who in fact, in fact are slave traders, modern day slavery traders. And they, pr they pretend they're going to give the children education and a trade, but they send them 200 the coast from the capital up to Lake Volta where they live miserable lives, dangerous lives, full of disease because the lake has got all sorts of diseases um, surrounding it and they die they, or they're seriously injured. And the thing about um, Anthony and Michael was that Anthony um, had been at the lake and he had escaped and he had trekked the 200, 250 miles from Lake Volta uh, back to the capital. And he was quite reticent about why, what had actually happened. But he, he had been one of, and very often slave traders have two or three boys who work on the boats. And he was very reticent to tell me what had happened to the other boy, uh, Michael, um, who was working with him. And it was only really when I was about to leave um, Ghana to go back to the UK that um, he actually told me what happened, which was that Anthony uh, was ter actually terrified of, of the water and terrified of 
looking into the water to breathe in that. And so what would happen was that Michael, instead of sharing it out with Anthony, having to share this terrible responsibility, Michael would dive under constantly for his friend Anthony. And it ended up with Michael getting trapped in the nets one day and dying. And that's where Anthony realized the law of the lake, which is that you children are nothing. You are disposable. You're like tools and you will die. And then they'll get more slave children and he escaped. But the interesting thing about it, I think, is, is why this chapter got called The Perceiver of Pain is because that reaction between Anthony and Michael. My Anthony was sold by his father, but he still had a mother who wanted him back. And in fact, he was from the next country across, which is Benin. Lake Volta is one of the centers of human trafficking in West Africa. And children come from all over and are trafficked there at the lake. Anthony, he still had a mother who wanted him back, who'd been duped by the father, um, and he still had a future. Michael's family had just sold him, and they didn't want to have anything to do with him. And it's kind of almost, he, he kind of, in a sense, sacrificed himself for his mother. And that is, I think, a really interesting part of who, who human beings are because it deals with this whole notion. And I think it's one of the things that possibly distinguishes us from other animals. And then the notion of empathy and compassion. And I think this is one of the, the, the big, for me, the big takeaways from the book as well. is about we have this amazing capacity for empathy. And that is one of the things that is our greatest treasures and one of the things that we should not underestimate and we should value. And the, the research on it is really interesting. It's a, a, a flourishing, a burgeoning research-based moment that comp human compassion isn't just something that certain people are disposed to and other people are not. It, it's also something that can, you can be taught. There's something that's trainable and you can, in fact, improve, you know, like a muscle and you can improve it. And it's something that is a teachable skill. And I think that's a really, really important thing. Yeah, and it's, it's a skill that's becoming more and more important in the world. But I, I loved when you simplify this and you say that the basic premise is like Cain in, in the Bible says, am I my brother's keeper? And there's, there's a key piece here, though, I'd love to talk about, Dexter, and it's in charity, for example, or NGOs, etc. They'll throw out a figure like 5.5 million children live their lives as slaves, but our perceiver of pain persona, that type, the mechanism by which we monitor the plight of other people cannot absorb that information, and it results in what you call a kind of cognitive paralysis. And, and to to challenge us then, you introduce another thought experiment, which is th that we imagine we have a thousand pounds to give to charity. Could you take us through that one? Because that again, contextualizes it for people and makes it real. It's very interesting research uh, by uh, an American psychologist, Paul Slovic. And he, he has uh, 
examine very carefully this concept of cognitive overload and this uh, crisis of compassion. And, you know, the one way the colleagues at Harvard, the way they would, they would talk about it in this way, they would say, um, we have a, a mental bandwidth. And part of that bandwidth, that capacity, uh, is to do with our ability to um, register and absorb the pain um, of other people. But we, you have to be very careful about that. And, you know, during the research for the book, in, in one of the parts, um, in fact, funnily enough, going back to the aggressor again, in Central African, Central African Republic and Cameroon, you know, I met some amazing, courageous, fantastic people, you know, frontline NGO workers working for international agencies who are he- basically, Aiden, these are heroes. These are people who sacrifice themselves for strangers, for, for children and for vulnerable people who they're not related to, who they've never met before, and who aren't anything to do with their culture or their society, and yet they do it. But very often we find that it's like a, a ticking time bomb, and they get burnt out. And a couple of the most incredible people who I met suffered exactly that. And these are these are heroic women who have risked, risked so much for other people. And then they get burnt out because what happens is that we get this terrible, terrible uh, training of our capacity to respond to other people's pain. Because, the, and, and just, I'll come to the hypothetical in a minute, but I think we just need to understand the mechanism first. And the reason for it is that what is interesting about hum- most human beings, not all human beings, but most human beings are probably 95% of us, perhaps, I think it's between 92 and 98, let's say 95% of us, do have this uh, capacity for deep empathy. And so when we see pain and suffering of others, we actually feel some of it ourselves. That's why very often if you see a charity appeal on television, you see, you know, children in the developing world in a famine situation with flies landing upon them and all of this, many of us look away or flip the channel. And that is not something we should be ashamed of because it's a very human reaction because it's uh, protecting ourselves and protecting that bandwidth and capacity. And so the mechanism is that we are able to understand and absorb uh, this pain and suffering of others. We have um, what people call, uh, science call mirror neurons. So there's a lot of controversy about the extent to which uh, these are the um, fantastic explanation for a lot of things. We About 10 years ago, people were very, very excited about but there is no doubt that we are able to understand the suffering of others. There is a small subsection of people, um, again, who I have to deal with in my um, legal work, <coughs> who don't, who are, who are psychopathic. And people who um, 
Because there are two parts of it. One, are you able to understand uh, that another person is suffering? Um, the second part of it is, does that affect you? Do you have an effective response? Does that make you uh, feel emotionally uh, upset or whatever? And there are a lot of people who um, fall into the first category, the vast majority of the population. But there is a small section, even of uh, people who do that, who still aren't uh, affected emotionally by it. And they tend to be psychopathic and highly dangerous people who are able to uh, perpetrate acts of great violence. But going back to the hypothetical, so that's kind of a long run up to the wicked, I'm afraid. But <laughs> going, going back to the hypothetical, well, that's the, I think, Aidan, that's the background to understand. That, that's what's going what, That's what I think is going on. But so the hypothetical is, you know, imagine if you've got a hundred pounds and you can give that to a charity in the UK and you can materially improve the life of one person in the UK with that money. What if you are presented with the same thing? You can give £100, but what you can do with £100 is materially improve the lives of two people. But those two people are in Romania or are in the Far East or are in Central Africa. What would you do then? And that raises another really interesting question about what we actually are able to relate to, what is relatable to us. And this goes into issues about tribalism and group affinity and group identification, which I think is a very, very interesting topic. We'll jump into the ostracizer, I think, next, because it teased beautifully with this. But I, I love the way you summed up this chapter, the, the perceiver of pain, is that we've evolved an inconceivable range of emotions, but we aren't very well equipped to do emotion at long range. So that's where I was saying with you, because you were surrounded by this and you were surrounded by the devastation of the impact, the negative impact of these cases, it brought it closer to you. And so many of us are removed. And as you say, we look away because I think this is the key point I took from this is if we're over empathetic, it does drain us because we do feel the pain. And and the other key thing I took was we're designed that way because it's to protect us. Because if we do go be overly empathetic, it's like when you have that friend or that family member or that sibling or partner who unloads on you or when you have an argument, it's draining. It drains the life out of you. And this is what I really took, and I thought it was so important that this is backed up by biology and neurology, yeah. and, and you know, it's just so many elements involved in this, but it affects how we behave in the world. And I think that's really interesting, because what's fascinating to me about it is the explanation for why it is we find it difficult to do emotionally long range. And the answer is very likely to be an evolutionary one, that how we evolve, and this is part of kinsmen, this is part of the tribalist, two and a half million years ago, because of a wobble in the planet, the flows of air changed, the weather changed, 
and those lush, rich uh, tropical forests which our ancestors lived in were desiccated and they dried out and they had to find another environment to live in. And they went into the great savannas of East Africa. But when they did that, they had to adopt a completely different form of living rather than living in just clusters of one or two small units. They started in order to try to survive and try to hunt and try to flourish. They started being more complex and bigger social groups. And you, if you look on the savannas of, of East Africa, you go to Kenya and you go to um, the countries around that where I've been, amazing places. And you will see that to survive, you need to survive in herds and in groups and in small, bigger groups. And so we then started to develop this uh, ability to deal with other people or deal with other conspecifics, so other creatures of our species. So we started dealing with those conspecifics, but it was very limited in range and it was very, very localized. And so we weren't able probably to think about people over or, or the groups of humanoids over the next horizon. And so we've evolved. I mean, what's interesting is I think we've still got the legacies of these ancient Stone Age modes of thinking because it takes time for evolution to develop and change all these things. And here we are in the concrete jungles of the 21st century Western societies, those of us who are in the Western society, and we have these intriguing, ancient legacy systems from when we were on the savannas. It was an extraordinary thing, I think. It really is. And it's, it's so liberating knowing about them. And, and this is, I think, your gift to the world beyond human rights work you do. Uh, and you do so much of a pro bono. Apart from that, you've given the world this legacy, which is brilliant. And I love what you said there, because you talked about the tribal behavior and our inability to go beyond, you know, you mentioned Dunbar's number, etc., beyond the tribe that we're in. But you then talk about the punishment for threatening the tribe as it is, and that the social behavior of the tribe must be met. And if not, you get ostracized. And you introduced the fascinating behavior of the yellowy emerald color goby. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna attempt to pronounce the Latin. <laughs> I'll leave that to you, man. But that I think this this is this absolutely fascinated me. And I think it's just such an amazing exa- metaphor for what what we see both in, in our Colosseum like behavior in media, but also then in life and how we behave when a change maker, and I think this is so important for for this show because so many change makers and innovators and corporate mavericks listen to this show, and they get ostracized all the time. And this behavior of the goby fish actually holds one of the keys to why. Yeah, well, you know, you know what? This is, I'm just so delighted you mentioned this. This is my, like my favorite bit of research. Same here, man. I love this. <laughs> Seriously, I just this this is my favorite bit of research in the whole thing. And you know what what it was was that I'm gonna get back to the goby in a bit, but I'll tell you why I how I got there. Because I contacted I was in Boston at the time and I contacted colleagues of mine, you know, and said, Listen, 
what is it we as a profession are doing about FGM in the UK? In the UK, there are 65,000 girls who are at risk of being genetically mutilated. And every year, girls are being sent back to their countries of origin in what's called the cutting season, which is in the summer, to be cut. Uh, and they do it then so that the girls, have, they bind the girls up afterwards. So they have a greater chance of healing before the new school term starts. And I said, you know, what? I said, what are we doing as human rights lawyers? This is, if there are 3 million more girls being cut every year, there are 65,000 girls at risk in the UK. What are we doing to try and stop it? And the answer was nothing. So I said, right, we are going to do something. And I set up um, a working group of the Human Rights Committee, and we did the report, the analysis I talked about earlier, which we submitted a parliamentary inquiry into FGM and got the law changed. We created what are called FGM protection orders, which give the court powers to stop the girls being sent abroad if they're at risk. And so that was one thing we did. But the, but but what what's interesting about FGM, it seems to me, is that it engages uh, a couple of these. And the thing about these types of human, these mental modules, is that sometimes they're in conflict. And you're right to say, quite right to say, as you said earlier, sometimes one of them takes the driving seat. But what's also interesting is where you have conflicts between them. And so I think FGM is a very, very interesting phenomenon because you've got, on the one hand, the nurturer. You've got parents, and the, the parents who inflict and arrange for their daughters to be cut very often are completely res otherwise responsible, good, caring parents who won't have come to the attention of social services at all, at all. And that's why it's so hard to detect. And they want the best for their child. That's the nurturer. That's the kinsman. On the other hand, they also are very acutely aware of their social group. So we have this deep, deep desire, this need to belong. And that's the tribalist. And so you've got this desire to belong to a social group. And then we come to the Gobi fish. Because the Gobi fish, it seems to me, was at the heart of all of this. And I understood this mechanism about FGM much more once I understood what happens to these fish. Someone who's now a really a, a, a long-distant friend of mine called Marion Wong, who is a researcher in zoology in Australia. She studied at Cambridge, but she's been obsessed with fish all her life. But in the river camp, all the fish are dead. There's nothing there. That's so polluted. So she went, she went to where the real fish were. And so she studied on the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. And Marion would say, Dex, you know what? It's amazing. You know, she would spend her days face down with a snorkel and, uh, with snorkel and flippers watching these one inch long little fish. He said, Dex, you know, it's, it's like the big brother house down there. It is <laughs> unbelievable. And what happens is that on the barrier reef, the, you know, the Gobi, they are very territorial and they each have little segments, little patch of the coral of the reef. Now, life of the Gobi is pretty tough. And so the way for them to survive is to band together into uh, little groups, clusters. And they're about 12 to 15 in a group. 
But in that cluster, there'll be one male and all the others are female. But it's pretty dangerous. And so there are two things that look extraordinary that happen. One is that if the, um, if the male dies, uh, and so they're left with just women, the largest female then develops male sexual organs and becomes the dominant male, which for me is an extraordinary mind-blowing thing that happens there. That's the first thing that's extraordinary. But there's something I think even more extraordinary that happens that Marion was telling me about. She says, Dex, you know, the thing was, and this is something that she discovered, she said, we saw every now and then these little fish would all just line up all next to each other. We're going, what the hell is going, what are they doing? These little fish would just line up in, in the coral uh, waters. And then she worked it out. What they were doing is what we all do as human beings the whole time. They were sizing each other up. And so she analyzed differences between them. And what she found is that between each of the females in the group, there was the same, the precise same coefficient. Each would be 0.93 difference in size to the one above and below it. And it was an extraordinary finding because that coefficient, 0.93, or the 93 as she called it, was because it meant that you were sufficiently big to beat off the one below you, but not sufficiently big to threaten the one above you. And so you were in a stable hierarchy, literally a pecking and a feeding and a mating order. Now, what's interesting about it is that they then did, Marion and her colleagues then did experiments and they would take um, in, in, in a completely controlled way and they used clove oil to anesthetize them, which was not harmful, and they would put them in, in a tank um, and then give them a surfeit of food. So they said, basically, here's a buffet. You can eat all you want. You could go wild. And she couldn't believe it because they wouldn't do that. They would self-regulate it. And they do that because they understood that to uh, violate the social norm would result in their expulsion from the group. And in, in the, um, coral ocean, the coral sea there off the barrier reef, that would mean physical death. Because when one fish, as sometimes but rarely happens, did over, overstate, uh, its case and grow too large, it would be turned on by all the other fish and driven out of the group. And so, that is a form of physical death, and that ostracism is critical, I think, to understanding social groups. So going back to FGM, what one of the things that happens, uh, I was asked to do some research for the parliamentary inquiry into FGM as to what is the state of, um, at the coal front in the actual practicing communities in Britain. What, what, what is the state of FGM? And so because I work with uh, survivor groups, 
amazing, amazing strong women. I was able to get quite good access. And what we found surprised us because we asked the question, what it, why is it that FGM continues when you're in Britain? And the most common answer we got back from people in, in these practicing communities was because we are fearful, we are scared of being ostracized. We're being, we're scared of being blackballed. We're scared of being booted out. And so the, the terms which they use for girls who are not cut. So imagine this linguistic intellectual flip of what the truth is. Girls who are not cut in these communities are regarded as unclean. So, you know, this is a practice that can cause terrible damage physically, psychologically, and all sorts of illness and disease and death. And recently, you know, um, I work the chair of a, a NGO, um, which is an offshoot of the Guardian newspaper, which is a global campaign to end FGM. And there's a big campaign that has been running based upon the fact that in Somalia, recently a 10-year-old girl was cut and bled to death. And that's led to uh, the first ever prosecution in Somalia for FGM. But it's, isn't it interesting, Aidan, that the mechanism, the driver of this behavior, even in Britain, is fear of ostracism. And that is a really powerful thing because for the goby fish, ostracism, violating a social norm, leads to physical death. In the West, with practicing FGM community, it doesn't lead to physical death, but it leads to social death. That if your daughter is not cut, you, she can't marry. If you come from a family that's deemed to be unclean, you are ostracized by the community. They won't do business with you. You're not invited to social gathering. You are then pushed out. And then that is a very difficult position to be in, in a community that is already marginalized from mainstream British society. Yeah, and it's, it's almost like they don't kill you, they kill your persona, or they kill your potential within a society. And you mentioned earlier that Marion said that it was like Big Brother down here, and you do relate it to that, because when you think of media, Big Brother, X Factor, Strictly Come Dancing, this kind of mentality of somebody gets hurt or somebody fails or, you know, and then someone triumphs. But equally as the triumph, we like to see the failure in a way. And you relate it brilliantly to the Gobi Fish story. You relate it brilliantly to Big Brother and the tragic case of, which lots of people don't know, of Sri Dasari. If we think that these... Um practices um, and these habits uh, are just legacy things that don't actually have an impact. You just have to look at what actually does happen in the real world. And Sri Desai was someone who was on <coughs> Big Brother in the United Kingdom. And he was uh, from the Indian subcontinent. And so he was a bit of an outsider anyway. And, you know, if you look at um, any tapes of him, I think there still are uh, some of them on, uh, in YouTube. You can see, he, he, you know, he's a slightly odd character, but he, he tried his best to fit in, but he is ra rather ham-fisted at it. And the thing about it was that he 
adapted his behavior. He tried different strategies, but ultimately he was rejected by the group. Eventually he was uh, evicted from the house. I think he's one of the first. He wasn't exactly the very first one. He was one of the first to be evicted from the Big Brother house. Um, and then he went back. And he was over in the United Kingdom at a um, studying business at a university uh, outside London in Hertfordshire. And he would go back and he'd watch uh, Big Brother unfolding. And one day he was watching it. And he decided to try to kill himself. And if we think about the mechanism of what's happening there, you know, I've got two daughters, both teenagers now. And like most girls, I suppose, and also uh, boys of that generation, (laughs) they're constantly on their phone. And at first, you know, we were really really resistant to it and i i think part of what i understood from doing some of this research was just how important all of this was in terms of their socialization and their social groups and it was it's a new way of people communicating and finding their their niches and so i was once I understood that, I was slightly more relaxed about it. We still needed to police it and be very careful about it, but we were slightly more relaxed about it. But you see the same mechanism. You see uh, the vicious way in which the thing that causes the most upset and pain is to be unfollowed or unfriended. They go ballistic, they go ballistic because that, why should it matter to us? It matters because it is a public uh, rejection and humiliation if you're suddenly not part of that group. And the pain that we feel goes all the way back to those savannas because in those savannah environments, if you were rejected and therefore ejected from a group, that could be physical death. And therefore, the module that we have in our brain, the, the neuronal mechanisms that register social pain, uh, the pain of rejection. Interestingly, they, you know, evolution is, um, always pragmatic and they have piggybacked on the same mechanisms that register physical pain. And so when, when people are rejected, it does actually hurt. It does hurt them. And it does have a massive impact because our legacy is to know that rejection from a group is potentially catastrophic. And so whether it is in the Big Brother house or the Gobi Fish or FGM or teenage girls uh, unfriending people on their social media groups, these are all aspects of the same same process yeah i'd love to mention psychologist kip williams work because i told a few people about this and even telling them about it they could empathize it's the perceiver of pain coming to the fore yeah they actually felt the pain of kip when when he went through this experience i'd love if you would tell the audience because it's a great story and you do immediately empathize you know it was the most extraordinary thing kip is a 
fantastic professor. He's done some amazing research that has been validated and replicated across, I think, every continent now. And what he has discovered is robust and is just a fact, really, of, of how we function. But he came about it, like all these serendipitous things, purely by accident. He went to uh, a local park, new university town that he had moved to with his dog. Um, was it Michelob? Is that how you pronounce it? Michelob, the beer. Michelob. Yeah, yeah. yeah Michelob, the beer. It tells you about what he was interested in at that point. Like. He was a very young academic. Michelob. So he went with his dog, Michelob, and he was in the park and sitting down. And then suddenly he felt something uh, in his back and he turned around and saw that a frisbee had rolled across the grass and had nestled in his back. And he saw there were these two people we'd never, never seen before, two, two lads there who had been playing frisbee, throwing it to each other, who had uh, sent the frisbee astray. And so he stood up and as we all would have done and uh, did his best to throw the frisbee back to them. And then when he did that, surprisingly to him, unspoken, no one said anything. They threw it back to him. And he was now on his feet. And so he got the frisbee. And then he threw it back to the other one. And then they went round and round in a circle, throwing it to each other. And he was having a whale of a time and really enjoyed it. And then suddenly, for no reason, again, silently, they cut him out and they stopped throwing the frisbee to him. And, and he said, you know, I, I felt devastated. And, you know, he said, and he sat down with, the, with his dog and he, he was felt like his day had been ruined. He thought, why do I feel so bad? I don't know who these people are. I've not spoken to them. I'll probably never see them again, but to be cut out like that caused him real anxiety and pain and he said and he'd been looking hip had been looking at that point for um something to study he wanted to uh, develop a research project and in that moment he thought that's it i am going to study this why is it that we feel this so pain from social rejection what does it tell us about who we are and so that's why um, he developed this amazing, amazing program, which uh, if you're interested, you can go onto his website, Kip Williams, um, and you'll find him at his university in the United States. And you can actually have a go yourself. And the program, which is called Cyberball, you can go and have a go yourself. And you can see how it's got cartoonish-like characters who throw a frisbee between people and then you can be involved and then you can see what it feels like when you, when you get rejected yourself and it's bizarre because why should we care Aiden? i mean it's a mad thing isn't it but we do yeah it, it, it really does upset you <laughs> it really does and and on a darker note i mean the 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 tragic side of this can be what you mentioned, you mentioned your your daughters, but then you, you mentioned earlier on the shooting in a school, for example. Yeah. But oftentimes, the perpetrators of those 
school shootings. You mentioned Joshua Unsworth and James Lewerke. Yeah. And those guys both were ostracized. And this was their revenge against the tribe for doing this to them in a way. And I think that's, it's, it's so important for us to recognize that. But the reason I'm framing this is when you think of somebody like Kathy Bolkovac, who was an incredible woman, and I, I saw the movie Whistleblower, and she, she was just phenomenal. And I think she's just, like yourself, made such an impact on the world. But when you think about what she did being a whistleblower in Bosnia with sexual trafficking and sexual exploitation of people, a whole massive trade, essentially, and the fact that she went ahead and against her gut feeling the weak stomach when you're going to send this message to to your own tribe and say there's a problem here we need to deal with it that they go against it and and even though she did an amazing thing she was ostracized by her own people she was a cop in uh sort of nebraska and she came from a family of cops and she just saw one day an advert on the notice board there in lincoln nebraska saying you could basically earn twice as much money by being a cop, uh, policing the post-Bosnia uh, peace in, uh, for the United Nations. But it was run by a private uh, company. And they, they, you know, like a lot of these, these services, they had they'd been kind of subcontracted out to this sort of American corporation. And so she did, and she had two kids who she had to put through college. And so she took the job, and she went over there to Bosnia. And, you know, it, it, it went well to start off with. But then she kept notice that every now and then she'd come across uh, young girls who had been beaten up or who were terrified or emaciated. And she didn't quite understand what was happening. Then uh, a couple of girls' bodies were, were found in the local river. And so she kind of sensed there was something more sinister going on. And she followed a trail um, using you know, a bit of detective skills as well to a bar on the edge of town, uh, opened the door and went in. And she saw inside um, a number of girls who literally were girls, just young, vulnerable, who were <clears throat> being kept and exploited um, effectively as sex slaves. And this was not just a unique experience. She, her um, investigation just revealed that this was... Um, a trade that was going on and it was going on and being used by people in the United Nations as well. A most shameful thing that you can imagine. So they, there was a trafficking route where they would bring girls into Bosnia to be sexually exploited. Um, she wrote a memo and she said, this is a disgrace. It's happening under our noses, on our watch, and, and people, our people, are also implicated and involved in it. And you would have thought that, or you'd have hoped, I suppose, that that would be a wake-up call and a call to action. But as you rightly say, what happened, in fact, was the opposite. 
that she was shut out, um, ostracized. She was uh, accused of all sorts of things that she hadn't done. And effectively, she's put into an intolerable position to try and shut her up. Um, As it happened, our legal practice, um, my chambers in London, represented her on her claim um, against the company and won it so that she got some recompense. But it had a terrible, terrible impact upon her. And as you can imagine, having to contend with all of that has been um, a a dreadful strain on Cathy for a number of years. But I think it raises an interesting point because it's it's kind of a part of our functioning, which is this sort of shoot the messenger kind of thing that happens, this process that happens, that where you, you know, and it's part of the sort of nature of human organizations, which is even if they happen to be dysfunctional and harmful in certain respects, people are prepared because they are invested in them, that they have a place within that structure. They are prepared to let things slide rather than confront these ugly truths that lie buried within them. And so for someone like Kathy to try to expose that, it, it is not easy. It is not easy. I agree with you. She's an amazing, amazing person and really deserves recognition. The thing I found interesting is that there's so many threads of the other types within here. So if somebody, like you said about FGM, somebody is in the tribe, they're seeing that if they are the one to whistleblow, they'll be the one ejected. And it's almost like when somebody does go against the tribe, it's like the Gobi again. It's like, well, we'll make such an example of them that nobody will ever, ever even attempt to do it again. And it's like the beatings you mentioned of Anthony and Michael in Ghana, that it was so severe on purpose to send a message to everyone else to go, do not step outside the tribe or outside your station. If you do, this is what happens. And therefore, everybody obeys the social rule. Most societies or social groups, they have uh, a principle they call, you have to pay to stay. So that whether it's explicit or implicit, whether it's uh, some contribution you have to make in, and in you know traditional hunting societies, for example, you pull your catch. So if you go out and you, you catch some fish, or, or in the um, north of Australia and the islands there, if you catch a turtle, you share it. And so you you have, there's a physical pain to stay being part of it. There is also another type of payment, which is you let things pass and don't challenge the rules because challenging the rules can be highly destabilizing. And so part of the pay to stay is almost um, this complicity, this silence, and this saying, you know what, yes, yes, it may be bad, this kind of thing that we're not going to talk about, but destabilizing the social group is far worse. And so part of the argument would have been in Bosnia, yes, it's bad that a 
members of the peacekeeping forces and units were sexually exploiting teenage girls who were trafficked from Eastern Europe to Russia. That is a bad thing. On the other hand, having these people there who are preventing any future possibility of ethnic cleansing and genocide is better. And so they posit this false binary and say, well, it's one or the other. And of course, it doesn't have to be. But that is how it's presented by a group. It's so relevant. And, and it's one of the reasons I, I brought it up was for parents to realize ostracizing of children on social media is really impactful. It has a massive impact. And, and then the other one is for business leaders and for corporate bullying that happens the whole time because what way do you get rid of an innovator or change maker or a maverick within a company is you cut off their power you start excluding them from meetings you start taking away parts of the responsibility giving them put out to pasture projects so they actually feel like they have no purpose anymore so it's it's very closely aligned and i thought yeah it was really important to to call that out we're, we're not going to actually get through <laughs> we had so much more with the tamer of terror the beholder the aggressor the tribalist the nurturer the romancer the rescuer <laughs> the next time. i'd love to do a part two maybe in the new year it's such a valuable book and it's worth the investment of people's time to read it and absorb it because this was a week i had to read the book but i got so much and we've only covered three of the types so is that all we've done <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, well i'll probably put a lot of our own types into the into the conversation but i where can people find out more about you and your work dexter the book uh you can obviously get it on amazon etc and there should be a link i think on amazon probably both to, uh, to penguin uh, Random House website, which will have some more information. Also, there should be a link somewhere to my site about the book, uh, the 10typesofhuman.com. Pretty easy to find that. And there's more information about uh, various parts of, of the book there. So if you want to get a, ta a free taster of, of the, and there are bits about each of the, the 10 types there, so people can uh, get a sense of it there. And it, you know, for me, it's been just um, fascinating and a joy having the, the privilege really to research all this, but also to, you know, speak to people, you know, like you, Aidan, who have just come to it cold, but can see that there, there are, there, there, there are interesting avenues and insights that we can derive from the, the evolutionary psychology from the uh, new neurobiology that we you know science is just opening all this up for us and it's for me a tremendously exciting time because this i think is you know that the, the the cutting edge research for the next 25 years is going to be all about this and understanding ourselves better it sure is and it's driven both our curiosities obviously I'd like to leave with this quote because I think it's so relevant to you, Dexter, and a tribute to you. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is good men do nothing. So author of 10 Types of Human, Dexter Diaz QC, thanks for being a good human and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Aidan. It's been such a pleasure. And really, that was you know one of the most insightful conversations I've had about it. I really hope we have an opportunity to do a part two 
in the near future. I'd love to. I'd absolutely love to. I really appreciate it.